This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Welcome back to Gotham TV Podcast, the home of the TV show Gotham. This is episode 45 of Gotham TV Podcast, covering Gotham, episode 20, Under the Knife. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hi, Gothamites, and I'm one of your other hosts, John. Yeah, how are you getting on, John? Are you wearing your nice tux for this evening's, this evening's podcast? Well, I was going to, but then I just kind of slightly cowered behind the cushions because there were some really decent, creepy moments in this, some really nice... Um, sort of stylistic flourishes that um, helped with the old scare factor, which I really liked. Some good old school kind of uh, jumps in, in there, which I liked. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely an interesting episode. Uh, I was just going to say, because we're on an audio podcast, that we could be wearing our tuxes anyway, and the listeners would never know. But hey, all right, we'll uh, we'll go with your hiding behind the, uh, the couch, unfortunately. Maybe I'm wearing nothing. Uh, wearing a tux. I'm wearing my pyjamas. <laughs> and as always, uh, if you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can subscribe at gothamtvpodcast.com slash iTunes and leave us a review for the podcast. I know the show has ended in the US, so uh, it'd be great to hear, get some reviews out there so that uh, people can catch up on our podcast as they're catching up on the show during their summer break. And remember, you can also follow us on any other good podcast catcher or Stitcher or Player FM. Again, if you can, leave a review so that people can... Um, Find us. Spread the word, Gothamites. Spread the word. <laughs> and finally, if you want to send us in any kind of feedback, send it to feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. As we come to wind it down the end of the season, we want to hear your thoughts on any episode or the season as a whole. And of course, remember, there's only two more episodes after this one for our competition, a signed print by Christopher Ominga of Oswald Coppelbot as the Penguin, along with some other goodies, a collection of uh, comics, and a few more bits and pieces that are top secret for the eventual winner. Your names will be put into a hat and picked out live on our last podcast of this season of Gotham, the finale episode, episode 22. And of course, everyone is more than welcome to enter from any place anywhere, anytime. Uh, just go on to gothamtvpodcast.com forward slash competitions to check out the competition details. And with that, I think it's time to talk about this week's episode. So Gotham episode 20, Under the Knife, was written by John Stevens, who we've seen quite a few times before this season. He's uh, He is one of the showrunners, uh, or the executive producers. Uh, he also wrote the episode The Mask and The Fearsome Dr. Crane, one of our favourites so far this season. And also, this episode is directed by TJ Scott, one of our favourite directors for this show. And he's also done many other shows, from Orphan Black to Constantine, one of our, one of our other favourites. Uh, he, in the past, for Gotham, has directed... Arkham and Spirit of the Goat, two of our early favourites. So a long time away and was able to get back in for episode 20. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. great. So, John, as usual, do you want to kick us off with your synopsis for this episode? Sure. Detectives Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock continue their investigation into the ogre and his crimes. As they begin to ask the right questions, so the ogre begins to tail Jim and Harvey and, true to form, starts to turn his masochistic attention onto someone formerly very close to Jim, Barbara Keane. Selina and Bruce also continue their team up into crime and corruption at Wayne Enterprises as they home in on the man name-dropped by Reggie, Sid Bunderslaw. As they attempt to steal a key to his office safe at the Wayne Enterprises charity ball, another pair are spotted, Jason the Ogre Lennon with Barbara Keane. As they dance, an apparent connection or empathy is evident between them and they head back to Christian Grey's. Sorry, I mean Jason Lennon's apartment for Fifty Shades of Gotham. However, another form of love is also evident in Gotham that night, compassionate love, as following the discovery of bruises on Christine Kringle, a concerned Enigma defends her honour and safety as he stands up to Officer Tom Doherty in more ways than one, just as you would expect from the Riddle Man. Oh yeah, the Riddle Man. Looks yeah. like he's getting his uh, his actual... Uh, moniker, I suppose, now, Enigma, from uh, from Tom. 
I think he might be, but who knows? But I think that's my first case point, actually. Yes, which I, I wouldn't mind talking about. The big shocker there at the end in All this right. episode. We'll jump yeah. right to the end, okay. Exactly. Remember, spoilers, <laughs> that Ed Nigma here stabs Officer Tom Doherty. Mm-hmm. Christine Kringle's boyfriend. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a big moment in the life of Ed Nigma. We've seen him stabbing watermelons. So Hilarious. Scene. Really good. Yeah. Um, comedy watermelons <laughs> <laughs> throughout the GCPD. Um, I wonder if it was laced with vodka, maybe when he walks into the office um, when he first discovers the bruises on uh, Christine Kringle's arms that really sort of moves him towards this course of action. Yeah, I love that. I love that he's bringing in a present to her of a uh, of a fully carved out watermelon with little watermelon pieces on the inside, like as if uh, as if this will get her to go out on a date with him. Still, he holds out a bit of hope that Christine is going to be the one that will still date him, even though she's dating Tom, clearly, at this stage. Yeah, and presumably, I suppose, given what happens at the end of the episode... That's exactly what he's going to have to do with Tom Doherty, Officer Tom. Um, Maybe his head with a few choice carved up pieces um, in that hollowed out head of his. Um, You know, so maybe it's a a, a portent of things to come, maybe. Um, Mm. But this is kind of, you know, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, so to speak, is that this is, you know a big moment and um, not just for this episode for me but for the season Definitely. you have seen enigma slowly sort of um sort of develop over the course of this season and um, just in terms of being a ocd and um, really organized and efficient member of the forensic unit mm-hmm. to someone as well, who was an outcast to someone who gradually sort of was building his confidence um, very slowly. You know, Jim um, being very different towards him than any other member of the GCPD, even seeing Harvey and um, Captain Essen warm to the, this guy um, in the forensics unit, yeah. Ed Nigma, and slowly sort of building up the confidence with this crush that he has on Christine Kringle, only for that to be essentially taken from him. Like, she is, has been dating Flass, and then as soon as Flass is off the 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 market, <laughs> for want of a better word, you know, then uh, this other police officer, Tom, comes in. And you can see the transformation when it gets creepier and creepier. You kind of had him, you know, putting arms and legs and other bodily parts into the uh, locker of the former medical examiner. Yeah, Dr. Gary. Yeah. yeah, and now, ultimately, in defense of Christine Kringle, in defense of her honor, in terms of trying to protect her, um, he is standing up to this bully in, mm-hmm. in Tom Doherty and follows him, you know, moves this towards sort of tailing him and leading to him been stabbed there underneath the railway lines and the big question is this the riddler being born or is this the start is this the absolute genesis the the focal point the big bang where now he maybe moves on his way to become the riddler even more you know i really i'm looking forward to seeing actually what ed does next does he draw back from what he's done or does it embolden him to do more sort of bad things um, like murder even though maybe you could argue it was done for the right reasons um, in terms of initially trying to protect Christine Kringle he has now done a bad thing and of course a piece of dialogue at the start of this whole season was sometimes a good man has got to do something bad for Mm -hmm. it to be right that's what he was kind of doing here in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is a reaction at the end of that scene after he kills Tom that I think was really interesting. Um, he is shocked at what he's done himself, clearly. But then that turns into a laugh. Um, he's clearly enjoyed it because he's taken out someone that he didn't like and someone that treated what he thinks should be his girlfriend really badly. So he's getting a bit of a taste for it by the, by the, sound of it, by the end of that scene. Yeah, I wonder that whether it's a power thing that he's managed to 
have power over someone who he normally wouldn't have mm -hmm. by essentially stabbing them. But I, I kind of did initially take that. I thought it was more of a hysterical laugh. I thought because he, he says, oh, dear, and then kind of it's almost like a nervous laugh to me. Um, I was slightly unsure. So it, it's mm -hmm. different. You, you, you kind of say that. It would be yeah. really interesting to hear what um, people who are listening think. You know, yeah. Do they think that this is the moment where that laugh emboldens him to do other things like that? Or do you think that the laugh maybe is more of a nervous, oh my goodness, what have I just done? Um, and he maybe tries to just pull away from yeah. doing that. My point being is that it's not 100% certain Absolutely. that this leads him down the path to being the Riddler. Yeah, definitely. Um, they, they can definitely go either way on the show, obviously. I think for me, my, my take on it was that he arrived with the knife, he waited outside Christian Kringle's apartment for a number of hours, so it's definitely premeditated, or at least for a long period of time. I don't know how many, many hours of time it was going to be, but he waited outside for a, a period of time, waiting for Tom to turn up. The minute he arrives, he goes to him, he stabs him, and then kind of regrets it and then laughs about it. So to me, I think they've they've played it really well in the fact that you can't tell for definite that this is the start of the Riddler. Will he do more things like this or will it only be to people that are love rivals for him? Definitely. I just, I do think Ed's reaction is fantastic here. It it keeps the ambiguity a bit um, there. It's not set in stone mm -hmm. that this will be within Gotham, within the series, his jump off point to becoming the Riddler. It's a slower descent into the criminality uh, for Ed Nigma. Yeah. And given he's on the police force, it's you would expect that rather than rather than him to simply just jump ship, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Just one other point, though, that was great in that scene was just the use of the railway oh, and the sparking as he does that deed of stabbing uh, Tom Doherty. Yeah. Um, it's really, really good. The The lighting on it, the stylistic touch of it is brilliant for the scene. Absolutely loved it. Really just added so much to the whole performance of these two men and, and the, the, the symbolic aspect of what that scene entails. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the... the train came across as if as if the wheels of the train were screaming at the at the thought of Enigma killing Tom underneath. That's what it came across to me and the lighting of it was fantastically done. Brilliant job by I'm presuming TJ Scott again. We've seen his stylistic choices in previous episodes before and I think this is another great one for him here. Yeah, well I think that's my point on um this. Um I mean I do have another Enigma special, which mm -hmm. I think this is my second case point. I really thought it was great was uh, Ed Nigma's love riddle, in in a sense, um, to Tom. And here it is here. I can start a war or end one. I can give you the strength of heroes or leave you powerless. I might be snared with a glance, but no force can compel me to stay. What am I? You got me. Love. Miss Kringle has given hers to you, and in return, you hurt her. Yeah, no, I mean, given what happens at the end of the episode, I just loved this um, declaration of love for Christine Kringle to the man who is abusing her. Um, again, it's he is being quite powerful here in, in stating his intent that he loves the person that Tom Doherty is, is going out with. Mm -hmm. He feels that, that she occurs for him and that in a sense Tom has almost maybe stolen her from him. I mean maybe this obsessiveness will ultimately and violently spill out onto Christine Kringle. Um, who knows? Um, it is becoming obsessive um, and she has stated many a time that whilst she has feelings for him and cares for him she doesn't necessarily want to take those feelings any further and this is really um, an interesting beginning um, as well of possibly other avenues that the Ed Enigma character might take. But I love the fact that uh, Ed here is speaking directly to Tom and given that then he slays Tom later on in the episode, this is a really great kind of thematic moment throughout this episode. So yeah, yeah. I, I really liked uh, this. And again, I think 
there's a love element here you know it, it, it's expressing his love a, a compassionate and caring love to try and protect christine kringle whilst at the same time you have the potential of um jason lennon and barbara Keane here and even jim gordon and um, being concerned for a previous lover um all in this episode so that there's a, a big theme about uh love and compassion here and also telling lee that he loves her for the first time as well um, yeah at yeah. the start exactly yeah yeah um yeah definitely a, a lot of a lot of love moments in here and a brilliant episode for edna but definitely it's really ramped up his storyline over the over the course of the season so far and this is a really good payoff I'm presuming with two more episodes left, we're going to get a bit more of Enigma and maybe an explanation to uh, to Christine Kringle, which could be a difficult moment, I would say, uh, for him. Yeah, maybe. I mean, for me personally, I actually hope they kind of show him regretful slightly, mm-hmm. but maybe something else happens where it's accidental. I still think there is a, a question mark as to whether he meant to stab Tom. Mm-hmm. He could have taken the knife as self-defense, knowing that this guy's a big guy, um, but not necessarily with the motivation to kill him. Yeah. That is still a bit unclear from the the scene in the episode, I think. Mm-hmm. But certainly he was meaning to challenge Tom in relation to his abuse of Christine Kringle. Yeah. That I definitely see. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Totally agree. So, Derek, what's your uh, first case point? Uh, my first point is right back to the start, so end to the start. Um, I just like the tie-in with the previous episode between Bruce and Selena, where essentially Selena justifies why she killed Reggie. Um, she, she justifies it by saying that, you know, he would have killed them. Reggie's the one that tried to kill her in the past, that he tried to kill Alfred in the past, and that he's probably the one that killed Bruce's parents. Uh, really interesting that she uses that little... Uh, I suppose that twists that little knife in Bruce to try and get him to forgive her. Um, quite interesting that she that she pulls on those little heartstrings. She's still the only person that we've ever heard could possibly have witnessed the Wayne murders, and she essentially uses that to Bruce to justify why she why she committed the murder of Reggie the previous week. Said that he was going to do it. Um, says that Bruce was was definitely going to do it, and she took it on board because she can handle stuff like this, and she'd do it again. Um, it kind of feeds into the later arc with the two of them at the at the Wayne Ball, um, which I didn't like the scene as much. Um, the opening scene, I thought, worked really well. I liked that they were having a genuine conversation about murder and essentially the justification that Selena has for it. But later on, the idea that Bruce has to have this conversation with her saying... Again, yeah, always. Exactly, but also underlining it for Batman fans that I am Batman, I will never kill anybody. It was a bit... It felt a bit off. It felt like... You know, he's only he's he's young enough to have these conversations without having to draw a line in the sand and say, I will never do something like that, because hopefully he thinks he won't need to be in these situations every week that he's going to have to choose between killing somebody or not. It seems like it's written from the perspective of somebody that knows he's going to be Batman rather than having it naturally be a piece of conversation from Bruce. No, definitely, because, I mean, even just the fact it's been done in a public place, you know, I am absolutely sure that. Bruce Wayne has got enough cop on not to be having that kind of conversation as forcefully as he does mm-hmm. with Selena um, in a public place yeah. like that. I mean, don't get me wrong, she tells him to shut up, but it is. it, it the, It's a point that's already been made at the start better. I mean, for me, in that scene at the charity ball, my issue was that, unfortunately, poor Selena Kyle was in that particular dress. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I thought... That whole conversation right after had much more power. And it's interesting you say about her tugging at his heartstrings in that scene outside Mm. under the bridge just after the the deed has been done. Is because it shows her has a great manipulator. She's tugging at the heartstrings. um, But she's also sees that Bruce is still struggling with what's happened. So he's vulnerable. He's Mm. still kind of, his guard is down. But then at the same time, she does add an element of threat to her voice. She says, keep everything that happened tonight a secret, not your butler, Detective Gordon, no one. Yeah. Like She really tells him to keep his mouth shut. Maybe that prompts his outburst at the Wayne Enterprises charity ball. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I think it would have 
been better delivered in a more private moment than as they're walking through an entire ballroom full of people. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely agree with you. They should be having these conversations. Personally, is the way I feel about it. There's no problem with the two characters actually genuinely conversing about it. Um, The timing was poor uh, being at a charity ball. Um, having that having that kind of conversation, it does mirror something that happened in uh, in The Dark Knight Rises, um, where Selena and Bruce are having a conversation about the wealthy and the poor. Do you remember that scene between yeah. the two of them, Anne Hathaway and uh, and Christian Bale? It does kind of mirror that scene that they're at a big ball and they're having these kind of deep conversations that could be overheard by anybody. But it's not to me. It's not really about the fact that they're having the conversations. It's the content. It's the actual words that Bruce Bruce says. I want him as a 13, 14-year-old, I want him asking questions as to why Celine is different from him, why she's willing to go to the lengths of killing someone, why she says things like, well, I'll do it again if someone gets in my way. Um, is it just a, a a wall that she's putting up, a shield that she's putting up? Is it something that she's done many times before in the past? I wanted to ask those questions as the character of Bruce Wayne. It's very un, very unusual for there to be such a misstep with the character played by David Mazous, very, very unusual for them to write him this way. Uh, for ha- to have him stand up and go, "Well, I'd never kill anybody." Uh, that's a line I will not cross. Seemed like he was writing it in the sand that I'm going to be Batman in a year's time, and this is what I'm going to say is definitely my, uh, is definitely the thing I'm going to do. You know, um, so I just felt a bit, I felt a bit off, but I did love the opening scene. Well, it's difficult to understand why he would get so moralistic about it, but then not report it to the police. I mean, there is that question. I'm fine with witnessing a murder, mm-hmm. um, but I'm maybe an accessory because I'm there. But I'm not happy that you pushed him rather than potentially me. Mm. Um, and but I wouldn't have liked either me or you to have pushed him. It, it, it's a really um, strange kind of thing. Which, if he had talked about his feelings, it would have sounded better to say, "Look, I'm, yeah. I'm not." able to deal with this rather than the lines drawn in the sand i'm taking a very moralistic stance that mm-hmm. i'm never going to kill even though i've just witnessed a murder and now i'm not going to do anything about it that's equally yeah. potentially as, as bad as um doing the deeds himself it's or it's, it's got ethical and moral choices assigned to it which he has decided he's not going to draw a line in the stand. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Maybe he's learned that lesson from Alfred when Alfred told him when something's happening in your personal life with your friends, you don't take them take them to the police, essentially, which is why he was chasing down Reggie. Maybe that's what, maybe that's another one of those wonderful lessons that Bruce has learned from Alfred. Yeah, exactly. It's all about him learning the, the lessons, but it's how those lessons are conveyed to the audience. But definitely, mm-hmm. I agree with you. The opening scene where the two of them are having the conversation is really, really good mm-hmm. and, and is much better than that later one. Yeah, and that's all I have on that point. Uh, John, do you have a next point for us? I do. Um, and it's Barbara Keane's story. This feels good. Really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it. I think it adds meat onto the bones it puts it into serious amounts of jeopardy and it shows her as being strong confident but she recognizes the pitfalls that she's gone through it it shows to an extent her um how far she has fallen and you know she's still drinking she's up for that and that good time and it's almost like she's at such a low point of despair that she will just say this yeah. to anyone. And I really liked it. It really showed the depth of this character. It gave her, along with the last episode, you know, huge amounts of screen time to really get a good idea of Barbara Keane. And I loved it. I really really liked it um, so much. I mean, even just the idea that there may be a Fifty Shades of Gotham aspect. I know I'm joking, (laughs) but, you know, going back to Jason Lennon's apartment and him showing this BSDM kind of uh, room in in his apartment, not... That's too many letters for me. I can't work out what that is, but I don't want to look it on the internet, so I'm not going to ask. I think it's BSDM. (laughs) Not that I entirely know myself, but, um, you know, he shows it that. I love the conversations that they've had leading up to this point. Um, there's almost a feel that there's an empathy. They've both had um, 
tragedy in their lives and in a sense yes very different things are going on with them but they're dealing with it destructively in both senses of the words um, you know yeah they kind of talk about that at the charity ball the, the scene the two of them have together in the scene here well that's very sweet but you said that when people see the real you they run screaming someone said the same thing to me once that no one would ever love me the woman I thought was my mother Barbara I know what it's like to be one person on the inside and have the world see another I lived like that and it almost destroyed me I can see it destroying you I don't want to dance anymore the person that I am now I created I brought him into being I can do the same for you. Aren't you tired of playing games? Of hiding? Yes. Yeah, so essentially the first time the two of them had met earlier on in the episode, Barbara had said, you know, that uh, if you see the real me... Um, you'll turn and run like everybody else. I've kind of been talking about it all season and I did have the same point as you, so I'm going to jump in with my point as well. But um, but essentially, Barbara has been falling and falling and losing friends and family and uh, her partner, Jim, all the way through the season. She's been looked at by uh, by Ivy Pepper and, and Selena Kyle as being a kind of a weird old woman who's telling them um, to use their looks and instead of uh, instead of actually learning how to deal with the streets, essentially. Um She's fallen. I've been, as I said, I was wondering what would happen when she hit rock bottom. And what happens is she meets the ogre, and the ogre is now convincing her in this in that scene. He's kind of convincing her that he will help her get out of the hole. The worst thing she can possibly do. We've we've seen what the ogre is capable of, um, and I, I'm really intrigued about what happens to her. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting matchup between the two, but I can see there is an empathy that you know they're both rich. They've both. Um, in a sense, being rejected, mm-hmm. Barbara, by her parents and Jason Lennon, the ogre, from the woman he thought or pretended was his mother. You know, they've both been rejected, yeah. um, and they're both doing destructive actions. Um, you know, we see Barbara Keane, the first scene of her in this episode, and she's drinking again, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously. Jason Lennon is up to his old tricks of hunting down um, single women to essentially force to love him and to like him. And if not, goodbye. All I can say is rich kids. (laughs) What can you do? (laughs) They have time to have psychological problems. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. (laughs) I do like uh, I do like Barbara's comments that she makes about why she goes to the ball. It's essentially a chance for every year to put on a nice dress and just stand there for photographs. That's all she's reduced herself to in her own mind. She's reduced herself to just being a socialite. Um, she has no friends. She has no family. She has money. That's it. Uh, and it's not doing her very much good, as Selena might say. I do like the fact as well that we see, again, a real um, reaction from Jim Gordon. I love that when he kind of puts two and two together and realizes that it might not be Leslie mm-hmm. who is being tracked down by the ogre, that it might be Barbara Keane, he does immediately go after her. I really liked that. I thought it it redeemed him in my eyes towards his um, behaviour towards uh, Barbara Keane yeah. a bit because yeah. he's kind of been very dismissive of her. I, it. It felt like he did care and I've not really picked up on that previously. So I liked that element to it as well. Definitely. And I think I, I mentioned how that, how that particular scene is shot where he drops the phone and realises... Uh, that that the ogre is after Barbara, and as he runs down the stairs, the camera goes into slow mo. Just that moment of realization again, another great stylistic choice in this episode, along with the with the uh, the train scene from earlier on, um, that we talked about. Uh, I just loved the, how it was shot. I loved how it was put together. It really did give a good bit of gravitas to the moment. Uh, and as you say, he's realizing that he's that he uh, he does fear for Barbara in this scene, and he does care for her really. Yeah, definitely. So, Derek, what's your next point? Uh, one for me is the horror sequence with Lee, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Such a horror trope. Uh, 
gorgeous girl in a bath, you know, um, hears a noise and goes out to investigate it. TJ Scott has used every single horror movie trick here. He's got, he's even got the cat jumping out from under the bed. He's got, got me. The, yeah, you were, you were jumping. I am always <laughs> undone by a cat. Yep, on horror tropes. Yeah, yeah. Um, pussies are really bad for me. Um, definitely, you know, having a, a pussy cat like that come after you is um, and jump out at you. It would scare the life out of me, definitely. <laughs> and it always seems to work. Every time yep. um, that happens in a horror movie or, um, you know, a scurry TV show, yeah. it just gets me. And I'm, sometimes I can actually be there going, there's going to be a cat that jumps out yeah. here. There's going to be a cat. And I loved the fact that the cat jumped out. You know, there was the bang while she was in the bath. Mm-hmm. There was then the sudden startle as Jim's actually there instead of the um, an intruder. There's the window open yeah. with the camera looking in. And it was just like classic, classic scare gags. And in particular, classic cat scare gag. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and poor old Jim gets a smack in the face with a telephone for his trouble of coming over to protect Lee. Um, I did I did like the scene afterwards. I thought the, the setup with, with the two of them, with Lee and uh, Lee and Jim, where he's saying, you know, they go after your loved ones. I thought it was a nice little sweet scene where she says, it's taken a serial killer to make you tell me that you love me, which I thought was hilarious. That was a nice little, <laughs> uh, nice little gag as well. Um, but yeah, a little bit of a perfunctory scene. And again, uh, just using the horror tropes is, uh, is something I'm, I wasn't really expecting in the episode. I'm like, oh, the minute I saw it, the minute I knew that she was in a bath and that she'd heard a noise, you knew it wasn't going to be the ogre coming over to her house. He's much smarter than that as a character. He's, he picks up girls in bars like he does a barber. So uh, I knew I knew it wasn't going to play out uh, the way that they were wanting you to think, I, th- I guess. Um, that's my point um, for that one. John, have you got your next point? Yeah, it's the Maroney, Gertrude, Oswald scene. Oh, yeah. um, and I suppose it also links into the you know, the poor old flower man, um, the, the flower delivery boy man. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Like, this is a really good scene. I love initially how Maroney and Gertrude are on are around the table Maroni is being really creepy, really stroking her ego, really playing up to her, um, you know, really making her feel a million dollars. And just um, Gertrude's reaction to this is just brilliant. I love it. And then it just takes that sinister turn where he asks Oswald to join them at the table. And you wonder what is going to happen. And then you have Maroney. He says it to Gertrude. Do you know who your boy really is? He's Mm -hmm. a killer. He's a murderer. You know, he goes through everything that Maroney despises about him and, and the reasons why, you know, he killed, um, his right-hand man, stabbed him again and again and again in the stomach. But he's saying this to Gertrude Capelput, not to Oswald. And you can see Oswald seething and seething. And then you just get the statement of intent brought down uh, on Maroney from Oswald that I am going to get you, that you are going to pay for this. And he then does that with the poor uh, flower delivery guy who um you know he soon realizes the error of his ways uh that you know maybe he shouldn't send a message and he should do it as a, a surprise attack of some description so then he jumps back out and uh you know slits the throat of this poor delivery boy I know, poor interflora delivery guy I don't think he was actually delivering flowers from Maroney's front door to Oswald's front door. I think he was a a delivery boy, you know. It's like killing the pizza guy. I mean, again, it's a real dark humour element to a real, um, you know, a real intimate scene between Oswald and his mum where, you know, she says, I wasn't born yesterday. I'm not a peasant from the old country who's got hay in her head. I mean, I loved it. I really liked how she expressed it. It was brilliant. And she asks him, you know, what is it that you do? And you see Oswald lie to his mother. Yeah. You see it pain him. You see that she will just go along with it because she wants to... She doesn't believe him for a second. She knows. But she wants to always believe 
the best of her son. Mm -hmm. And this is a son that, you know, has unfortunately um, dreams of grandeur and will get there by any means necessary. And that includes killing. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have the dark humor come in, which I love that, you know, him slitting the throat of the delivery boy. But you have his mom saying, who is it? And you have the next door neighbor. He's asking for some help to put yeah. the trash out. Will you help him? You know, I love it. Yeah. It's really dark humor. It's far better than inviting him in for some bear claws uh, out of his uh, out of his pastry shop, I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I found this a fantastic sequence of scenes between um, initially Maroney and Gertrude's then Maroney, Gertrude and Oswald, and then finally between Gertrude and Oswald, you know, stitch them together. Um, there is a fantastic uh, bit of drama uh, and exposition yeah. and some wonderful, wonderful acting between all three of these. Again, I mean, David Zayas, fabulous oh, as Maroney. I mean, you can see and understand why Oswald gets so infuriated. Mm -hmm. And then um, Carol Kane as Gertrude. I just love her. I love all her mannerisms and everything. And again, then Robin Lord Taylor. Again, just brilliant, exquisite, yeah. doing Oswald Cobblepot. Really good. Oh, absolutely. I just love Zayas uh, playing Moroni. And, and the question that he asks of Gertrude Cobblepot is, Essentially, are you, have you been pretending to me? How could you not know this about your son? You know, I love that that's how he poses the question to her. He's not trying to shock her with this information. He just thinks that she's been playing the idiot and playing the fool. You know, I thought that, that's a, a great, a great moment and a great, uh, great scene. Definitely. Good one, John. Yeah. So, Derek, what's your next point? Yeah, the next one that really stood out to me is the phone call between Jason Lennon and Jim. You know, I think it's a really good tense scene. It's great to have two characters who are chasing each other down, um, one stalking the police detective and the police detective who's fo following up all the leads. Always great in a, in, a, in a good crime drama to have the two of them speak on the phone and get the measure of each other, essentially. What Jim tells Jason, essentially, that, you know, I will find you. You only have one opportunity to give up, give yourself up or else I will find you. And what Jason tells Jim is essentially you're buying your own press. Um you believe yourself to be the uh, to be the cop that the press are telling you you are. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's fascinating. Essentially, really good, really good scene. Yeah, I really liked how um, the ogre here, just his treatment of Jim. That there's no deference, um, such as he's built up in the GCPD. This is, you know, this is coming back to all of a sudden someone is saying no to him. Whereas. Mm -hmm. Jim's been on a bit of a roll um, with obviously turning around Commissioner Loeb to an extent, or so yep. he thought. Um, you know, he's gotten the head um, of the police union. Harvey Bullock is, you know, on side. All, all of that. Um, I love just that treatment. There's no deference. It's he doesn't care that Jim is an authority figure. That means nothing to him. And I love it. Express who don't believe your own press. Really, really good. I mean, considering that Jim was um, going to be a, a, a prison guard at Arkham at the start of this second half of the season, you know, Jim has grown in stature and and has developed and become more powerful as someone in the GCPD now. Definitely. And all of a sudden, that rug is ripped from under his feet by this phone call. And I love that aspect to, of it, definitely. But then I also like Jim's reaction immediately after where he goes public. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, I'm not taking any of this. Um, you know, He still is a fighter, and you see it here, and he goes public essentially to expose the ogre. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's fantastic. Really, really good scene. Apart from poor Lee's hat. Uh, as she gives him a kiss before he goes <laughs> off to, uh, to, uh, to to speak to the media. Two terrible choices for the costumes uh, in this episode. One is Selena Kyle, as you mentioned, and the other is uh, poor Lee's hat. Um, not that we're fashion experts, of course. Not that we're fashion experts. Um, but, you know, if there is anyone with fashion expertise who wants to talk about these two uh, outfits, please feel free mm -hmm. um, to, to send in those comments or feedback because, um, yeah, we thought they were a bit... Dreadful. Yeah, yeah. It was like something out of the nineteen twenties, which I presume they go for occasionally on this show. They go for it mixing up styles over the decades. Uh, but hey, 
I'm not. I'm definitely not one to uh, to talk about style. So uh, I'll end. Uh, I'll end that point there. John, have you got your final point? I do. It's a slight reoccurring negative okay. again. It's just to do with the investigation into the ogre by the GCPD. Mm. I just thought it was a bit clunky. I'm not entirely sure. I think that the procedural elements of Gotham have always been the best. Um, but again, I think we have here certain leaps of faith being um, taken on board that, um, oh, we now must go from this cosmetic surgery to the Van Groot's house um, and we must m- make that leap of faith that he must have, they must have had a son and that's the potential murderer right. rather than a clear line of investigation. A bit like we saw with um, Jerome where they're brought into the um, the interview room, mm. maybe, yeah. um, as a suspect. That never seems to play out, people being a suspect and either them being right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think given that this episode of, of Gotham is part of three, mm-hmm. really, um, so... You had it with Beasts of Prey um, for episode 19. You've obviously now this episode under the knife. And then we know that next week, episode 20, The Anvil or the Hammer also has the ogre. Yeah. That there's still a conclusion to this element. So the fact that this has been given three episodes Mm -hmm. to breathe, I would have thought, could have been quite nice to breathe some life into the investigation part of it. Not to say that it takes over from all of the storytelling. Just the element that, you know, then all of a sudden they go from the cosmetics to the Van Groots and then suddenly barge into the Van Groots. You know, they've gotten a warrant for the cosmetics mm-hmm. um, surgery, but not for the Van Groots. Right. It seems weird that it all behaves differently and inconsistently. Yeah. Um, as I say, I'm not entirely sure that the these investigation pieces within Gotham have entirely worked for me. Sometimes yeah. they have, and when they have worked, it really stands out, um, those episodes, because it normally works so well then with the other more serialised elements. And I've mentioned this before. Yeah. So... Um, that's that's my slight negative, and yeah. it's just because I I would have just loved to have seen them over the course of this episode and the last, and then into the next, just add a bit more robustness to those investigations by Jim and Harvey. Yeah, like the the ingredients are all there. I know exactly what you mean. They've made the point that this case has been investigated essentially 11 times um, by various different detectives who've all made strides and have all made movements in it and have all gotten to a certain point and then have been threatened by the ogre and a member of their family has either been killed or or a threat has, has happened there. But they don't make enough of it. They don't make they don't make the point that they're pulling out all of the investigations and piecing it all together from the previous 10, 11 investigations potentially into the deaths of missing girls. Um but yeah, I know what you mean. It, it doesn't it doesn't come across as a good procedural investigation in this in this case. That it does seem to come across as lots of leaps of faith. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just the element that you know the initial investigating officer whose um, wife had died, and and then his his daughter. He still has a daughter, and he was really sort of afraid yeah. um, to to actually spill any more beans on this on this issue on this case. Um, you know. He was investigating, you know, this cosmetic surgery um, and, you know, he got too close and his wife was killed. But for me, they're saying, well, the case notes have things scribbled out. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of there going, given how corrupt the GCPD is, given how thorough the ogre has been to have lived for this long, do 13 crimes. Did he not tell him to bring them to him or rather than scrubbing it out to burn them? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if he's killed the, the loved one, maybe he should have killed the detective again. It's just slight things, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of going with the threat of the ogre. I'm kind of understanding that that's what they wanted to do. And I I understand that, that they're, they're hiding the evidence and removing evidence. Let's remember last week, what we found was 
uh, Enigma had found a photocopy of the piece of evidence that had been removed, which was the calling card that the ogre leaves at the crime scenes. Um, I'm kind of going with that a bit. I like I like those elements, but I just think they should have made more of the fact that they're piecing together uh, all the all the elements that the investigations happened on this cold case to make a case and find the ogre. It looks like everybody was getting close. That's why the ogre threatened them. If they were getting that close and someone's piecing it together, you should just be able to take those elements and say, all right, in this investigation back three years ago, this happened, and just kind of pull it together as a storyline, a cohesive element. And I don't think they did it very well. No, I, I think so, because I, I had to kind of really think and and write it down and say, okay, so they made the leap of yeah. faith here. I think there's just still too many light bulb moments. And I'm not saying that this should go into a police procedural. Mm-hmm. But I think because the, there are three episodes here, I'd have liked to have seen a bit more of that in this middle episode yeah. where they finally, you know, are starting to get some real tangible information on the ogre to actually then, you know, track him down and surround him. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and one of the things you, you actually commented on it there, and it's a, it's a moment of realisation. Do you remember last episode? Um the ogre was shown as having 13 victims. Jim and Harvey are investigating 11 missing girls. Um, there's two missing that they're not aware of. I'm wondering, these guys write the show. The Gotham TV writers are smart writers. They know exactly what they've written. They know exactly how many photographs we're taking of yeah. missing girls. I'm wondering if these two missing girls are going to play a part in this last episode of the ogre arc, as we probably call it. Um, I'm wondering if the fact that there are two extra girls that the BGCPD don't know about, I'm wondering if that will play a part into this. Yeah, it was interesting that um, inconsistency from the previous episodes uh, into the investigation now in in uh, Under the Knife. Yeah. And it, it wasn't clear why all of a sudden they were only looking at 11. I mean, I suppose the 12th person, or the 13th I should say, they do know mm-hmm. in that it was um, Grace Fairchild from the previous episode. That's right. Um, but who is number 12? Yeah, or who are the other two girls that they haven't counted anyway along the way? Yeah, yeah, really interesting. You know, so interesting. Derek, what's your um, final point? My final point, I think, is the only one we haven't spoken about, which is uh, which is the other investigation that's going on. Bruce and Selina teaming up. Uh, to take on Mr. Bundeslaw. Um so this uh, this storyline that's that's kind of been going on really since very early on with uh with Martha Math- Mathis um taking uh, taking some action against Jim and Harvey um as a member of Wayne Enterprises essentially Selina and Bruce have taken on this case and have now found out that Bundeslaw is an, a, another member of Wayne Enterprises who is potentially involved in the death of Bruce's parents. And they team up to get his keys to get into his locker in a safe, I suppose, in the office of, of Wayne Enterprises, so they can find out why Reggie was sent to uh, to kill um, Alfred, and potentially whether he mm-hmm. was involved in the murder of the of the Wayne parents, essentially. So um, really good that they've kept this going. Kind of uh, the good side of what you were speaking about a moment ago, we finally got three episodes that are really tied together last week's, this week's, and hopefully next week's that are all going to be really tied into a good, cohesive story. I love the fact we have Mila Ventimiglia in three episodes. He's been a fantastic guest star, as I said last Definitely. week. Definitely. My favorite yeah. so far of the season. And he continues that in, in this episode. Yeah. He is really good again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We also have this carry on from, uh, from Bruce and Celine. Uh, following the death of Reggie, which has carried over now for three or four episodes, been really, really good. Um, and obviously, the investigation into the ogre has been uh, has been carrying on since last episode. Um, yeah, I'm really, really impressed that we finally got some episodes tying each other, tying together. And I think for me, I really like the investigation and the research being done by Bruce and Selena because they're kids. In mm-hmm. a sense, this, this to me feels like a, an adventure. They haven't got. Um, grown-up processes, SOPs, or Mm -hmm. police procedures that they have to abide by. You know, they are, they can make the leaps of faith to say, um, we need to, you know, we need to steal his key because he has a safe, and there may be stuff in that safe, because that's their only avenue. They're not necessarily going to take down Bunda's law. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that's why it maybe just contrasts with Jim and Harvey. They are police officers, and they are police officers that... I know there's a grayness there to Jim Gordon, that he's not this angelic police officer or police detective. 
but nonetheless none of this holds up in a court of law you kind of mm-hmm. you're after people who are corrupt and are going against the system yet you we willfully go against the system yeah. you have a forensics unit you have an mcu a major crimes unit of which is not there again in this episode you have the officers on the beat you have um internal affairs you have all of these different units of a police force which are being referenced yet none of them are keeping you in check with regards to the the procedures that you have to go through in order to get a conviction yeah. and i that is what slightly um takes me out of that moment i know it's a heightened universe but nonetheless it shouldn't be like selena and bruce's that to me makes sense because of their ages and they're operating outside of a police department and 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 in a sense that selena is a street kid she can do some of these you know she's the anti-authoritarian there Mm -hmm. in a sense the fact that they're two police officers mean they are the opposite to that yeah but I agree. I really liked um, uh, their investigation as well. So that's the end of our five case points for this episode. John, do you have any notes? I do. Um, I have that the Irish mob are introduced that's here. Right. Kind of quite like that. So I'd All love right. to see if we see um, them back. Connor um, and his gang, yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing if, if they are, are back in some of the future episodes. Mm-hmm. I must say, I really, really am. Um, and the other part that I really liked um, was just when Jim and Harvey are talking with the the former detective of these murders, you know, I just really thought it was really tense. I thought Jim was pretty kind of, he felt unsympathetic Mm. and harsh towards one of his, you know, former colleagues, or at least Harvey's former colleague. Um, But it made sense why he was doing that, you know, that the line had to be drawn in the sand for him to sort of give up um, and potentially put his and his daughter's life back on the line. Mm-hmm. And I loved um, Harvey Bullock here. I loved Donald Logue's expression where he, the expression that he had on his face was, I completely am with you to the, the former detective. I, yeah. I don't know his name. But he's been won round by Jim that, you know, this needs to be put to bed. This needs to be solved and, and the ogre needs to be apprehended and chucked in prison or maybe shot in a shootout. Right. And I love that kind of conflict on uh, Donald Logue's face as Harvey Bullock, you know, and he kind of just, he has to bite that bullet and say to his former colleague, look, we need to do this, but we'll put protection on you and your family. Yeah. So I really like that. That was just another little thing that came out, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Derek, uh, uh, have you got any notes? Yeah, a couple of notes from me. Um, number one, just absolutely loved uh, the fact that when they went to the Van Groot house, uh, all the photographs of uh, young Jason had the face scratched out and them. I thought that was a good little touch. It's really, really creepy, really like Seven or something. It was really a really interesting choice for them. Uh, that was cool. Um I can't go by the episode without mentioning Alfred's fantastic scene um, where Bruce pleads with him to essentially go on a date with Selena and gets a great reaction. I've invited Selena Kyle. Selena Kyle? To the Wayne Enterprises ball? I see. What do you see? Nothing. I mean, you know, I mean, you're a healthy young lad and she's a very pretty young girl with a penchant of wearing one a little too much leather. Alfred, it's not like that. Then what's it like? Just think it's hilarious. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> just think that's hilarious. Just love that that little touch. But uh, but yeah, good old Alfred still lets him go on a date and he'll only be a couple of feet outside in the car in case anything's needed f- from him. But he's definitely aware that Bruce is going to turn into a ladies' man and he's going to have a lot of suitors. And if Bruce wants to go out with Selena, then go right ahead. Basically. And that Selena's going to have a little penchant for uh, leather as well. <laughs> Good touch, isn't it? Um, and then the last one is going to be our outro music for this week, uh, which is just a great choice. Once again, brilliant choices for music and episodes. We've talked a lot in this in this discussion about love being a central theme for this episode. The song that was chosen for the scene when uh, Mila Ventimiglia and Aaron Richards meet for the first time 
you definitely will recognize this from the episode. It was um, the the opening of the scene was a woman with gold lipstick um, just in one central part of her mouth as she was singing the words love, love, love. Uh, that's a song by The The or The The or The The, um, an 80s band. Or D-Bart D. An 80s band. Uh, the song is called Love is Stronger Than Death. Um, so I thought that's a great little choice there. Once again, brilliant title and a really good song from the 80s. We'll have a little bit of it at the end of the episode. But that's my final note for this one. Overall, John, what's your thoughts? I liked it. I loved the continuation of the ogre um, in this episode. Um, I loved that Barbara Keane again interwoven and given a real strong presence uh, and uh, role to do in mm-hmm. this episode and it really um it shows that the the wine and the vodka drinking and and the going to the parents and that falling apart in a sense that comes to fruition here and um, it, it it suddenly really adds to those episodes previously of showing her descent mm-hmm. down and down and down Actually, one other note that I completely forgot, and I'll just add here, I loved it when she realises that Selena is going to the same um, charity ball as her, yeah. but with Bruce Wayne. I thought that was really well done. I just thought the surprise on on her face and then all the the the, the bags are, are, of expensive clothes and, and accessories all come in. I thought that was a nice little touch as yeah, well. Between a certain this... look of jealousy on her face yeah, as well. Yeah, and know. that relationship between Barbara and, and Selena, I thought that was really nice. But I loved um, then Maroney, Gertrude, Oswald, and I loved seeing Ed Nigma's storyline get a really good push forward as well. And it, I actually... It's more the anticipation of what's to come as well for me, I think, seeing that. Mm-hmm. Where, is this where he tips over the edge or does he pull back? And I, I'm really interested to see how, how that goes. Yeah, so I, I, I loved all these elements. Yes, there's a slight weakness there, which um, I thought, in my view, uh, came from the investigation. And again, those kind of light bulb moments where it suddenly... It's a leap of faith and and you go there and you don't necessarily see the reasoning. Um, But for me, it's only a small point. I do think it's maybe something that hasn't been developed well over the course of this season. But nonetheless, I I can live with it because there's so much going on in this episode. And the serialized elements here again are superb. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And they kind of, they override that, to be honest, for, for myself. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was a good episode um, in all, and I really am looking forward to seeing it, it play out um, on that third part as well. Yeah. Certainly, it's the penultimate episode before the, the season finale, so I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, for me, this episode stood out as a really, really good episode. It's addressed tons of problems that we had talked about earlier on in the season about using villains for you know an episode and a half in the case of uh, in the case of Doctor Crane, uh, a film we would love to have seen more of. Uh, I'm delighted that um, we have a character like the ogre played by Mila Ventimiglia in this episode. I'm delighted we have him in these episodes for three. Uh, I'm delighted that we have in this season for three episodes. I'm delighted that we had a phone call between. The, the protagonist and antagonist here being the ogre and Jim. Yeah. Uh, I'm delighted that we've got some great scenes with Selena and Bruce, apart from one line that I didn't like. I'm so happy we've seen new Barbara come back, re- her realisation that she's hit rock bottom um, and has turned to the big villain of the piece. Fantastic. Yeah. These these three episodes back-to-back, hopefully hopefully it doesn't all fall apart next week, but these three episodes back-to-back would form a great movie. Um of Gotham because they're tying in so many great elements of the show. Yeah, New Babs is great, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, obviously, as you mentioned, Moroni uh, and his threat to to Oswald and him sen- essentially bursting the bubble of uh, of Gertrude Capelpult, which had to happen at some point. She's been flouncing flouncing around the city, uh, thinking her son is fantastic and just a nightclub owner, and she's going to come crashing down very soon. She knows now. There's no doubt in her mind, in my head anyway. Yeah, um, the gloves are off, definitely yeah, she, now. She, she knows that her son is a murderer. And her son is now so angry at Moroni, he had already threatened to kill him. He's found 
the place that he wants to kill him, and he's found the people that are going to do it already. So uh, let's see how that all plays out. Yeah, the gloves are definitely off there between Oswald and Maroney. Never bring someone's mum into a fight. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, if you've had any thoughts on this episode, episode 20 of Gotham Under the Knife, um, please send them in to us. You can send them in to us at feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. You can uh, like us and comment on uh, our group page. Just search Gotham TV Podcast. Or you can follow us on Twitter and tweet at us. Just find our Twitter handle at Gotham TV Podcast. You're more than welcome to leave a comment, a thought, any feedback on tonight's episode, any of the previous episodes from any of our other podcasts. Please uh, do so uh, and we will give them a shout out on the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I think with that, we've got some uh, little snippets of news. Yeah, so a bunch of shows are being renewed or cancelled or or uh, or are getting are started out uh, at the moment. There's loads of announcements about uh, about TV shows at the moment. Uh, some of the big ones that just wanted to call out because they're connected to DC TV at the moment. Uh, the first one's a bit of sad news. Um, Constantine, one of the shows that we've been so happy watching and really excited about. Um, it had a 13 episode season which finished in January of this year and unfortunately NBC has announced this week that they're not going to continue and they're not going to have a second season but the good news about that is that Warner Brothers Television who make the show uh, are shopping around for another network to pick it up so it's not necessarily the end of Constantine I hope so, I think it would be a really big shame for me if Constantine didn't find its way onto TV uh, next year. I think it's a big shame that it's been cancelled on NBC. And, I mean, there's a lot of suggestion out there that it may have been handled better by the network. I mean, certainly I think for ourselves over here in in Europe, it was put onto uh, Amazon Prime in the UK, of which then... Um, there's very few places that you can uh, watch that um, outside of the UK, mm-hmm. really. So that's right. Um, w- I mean, we were lucky enough to get some review copies of, of these, but it it was a, a, a real shame. I mean, we certainly thought a number of the storylines were excellent, but we felt that given the slot late on Friday, that it was doing pretty well. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, it's just a shame, really, um, but hopefully someone else will pick it up, definitely. Yeah, I had a moment watching this episode of Gotham where Jim and Harvey arrive into the Van Groot's house and the dead body of uh, Miss Van Groot is found in the bed. I had this moment where I just was wondering, wouldn't it be great if you could call in John Constantine to commune with the dead and she could tell them the story of who of who Jason is and what he looks like and what happened to him? Because it would be a nice little tie-in, so you could bring in another DC character and bring in a nice little, uh, nice little connection there. Yeah, and given the creepy and sometimes weird aspects of Gotham, which I absolutely love, mm-hmm. to me, I wouldn't see any issue with Constantine being in the world of Gotham. Absolutely. Be- it is creepy. It yeah. is weird. There are some magical elements that have been brought in, whether it's snake charmers and mystics mm-hmm. from the circus, or even imagined ones like the spirit of the goat. These things are all kind of brought in. Even the Gotham by Midnight um, series, where it's bringing in mystical elements. Yeah. We even have Detective Crispus Allen, who does become the Spectre, which is a huge um, magical uh, and, and mystical uh, member of the DC world, which yeah, yeah. could potentially exist in Gotham. So, yeah. um, you know, that would have been great. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, the support has been huge for, for Constantine over the last couple of weeks while this decision was being made. You had people like William Shatner offering up to the team that he'll appear in the second season if, on whatever network picks it up. He'll do a, a guest a guest slot in the show. You had Stephen Amell who said that he would love to have seen a crossover with Constantine and hopefully that can happen in the future. So potentially there are some options out there. Uh, a number of other people showing their support from the cast of Supernatural who once again have said that Constantine is where they got a lot of their ideas from and they want to see that show continue. So um, so it's, it's it's a bit of a pity, but it's on pause at the moment. It, it feels like it's probably a little late for the show to be saved for the coming season in October, but it absolutely could go to another network for, say, sometime next, next year, sometime 2016, or potentially picked up by Amazon for Amazon Prime as a 
a standalone show like they've done for for a number of other shows and uh, and hopefully we'll have a life there again but another news um another dc property has been picked up for another another show on fox a vertigo property uh, yes yeah. that's right uh, lucifer yeah yeah lucifer comes from the pages of neil gaiman's sandman um one of my it's, i suppose probably a seminal work it's it's one of my favorite books uh lucifer as you might tell by the name was the devil so uh so obviously he also comes from the pages of the bible um but in the reimagining by neil gaiman he is a uh, he is a a, a demon who uh, who doesn't no longer wants to live in hell and wants to walk um, wants to walk planet Earth and learn what he can about it. Uh, not going to go too much more in detail of uh, of the book itself. Um, they are taking the characters from that book and they are going to change it slightly. But a lot of credit is being given to Neil Gaiman for his creation of these characters. He's a, a fantastic writer. Has written some brilliant books as well. Um, the show is going to star Tom Ellis, who we know in Ireland as uh, as the star of a comedy show called Miranda. Um, Really interesting that he's going to be... Yeah, a uh, BBC sitcom. That's right, yeah. yeah. Really interesting that he's going to be starring in the show. But the other featured cast member for us, Gothamites, uh, really interesting to see is Leslie Ann Brandt, who played Copperhead in episode 10 of Lovecraft. You'll remember her as the person that chased down, um, chased down Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle. Uh, yeah, so uh, really excited to see how yeah. she fits into this world. Great little crossover there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that show's coming in 2016 on Fox following The X-Files. There so we will definitely, hopefully, be watching them if we live in the States. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, we won't. I just realised the pure nonsense of my argument. <laughs> if a Irish or UK broadcaster um, happens to do the same series of shows, then we'll be exactly like Fox. Yeah. yeah. That would be cool. That would be great, wouldn't it? It would be great. Oh, X-Files followed by Constantine. That could be Would be very cool as well. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Yeah. And then finally, um, the last bit of news is the death of Superman Lives. Um, What happened? Yeah. Yeah. This documentary um, about um, an unknown or forgotten Superman film that was to be directed by Tim Burton Mm -hmm. and starring Nicolas Cage. Yeah, yeah. Really fascinating looking documentary. This has just uh, just come out and, and it's being shown around. Um, the US at the moment is coming over to the UK at the MCM Comic Con in London uh, in I think it's about a month's time um, and then they're going to be bringing it back on tour and it's going to be available in video on demand, it's going to be available on Blu-ray and DVD and it's basically the hidden story of what happened to the missing Superman film. There was a number of years where we hadn't seen any Superman film between Superman 4 and uh, trying to think what the last one was called and Superman Returns. There was no Superman film, and Superman being one of the biggest characters out there, um, they couldn't get a movie off the ground. But one, starring Nicolas Cage, as John said, and directed by Tim Burton coming off his, his Batman movies, um, got very close to production. It was it was uh, Full script was written for it. Uh, there are photographs and, and scenes of Nick Cage in his Superman costume talking about who how he was going to play uh, Clark Kent and how he was going to do a different take on the character. Clark Kent was going to be a bit of a nerd, a bit of a geek and a downtrodden character uh, to make the big differentiation between him and Superman uh, very noticeable. Sounds like a fascinating documentary. Really yeah, definitely, to, definitely. Really looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. So I thought I'd highlight it. Um, I'll pop up, pop up a link to the website on, uh, on the show notes and uh, hopefully go check it out when it comes out near you. Yeah, I think with that roundup of the news, um, that's the end of this week's podcast. So thank you so much for listening. Again, remember, you can listen to us on iTunes. Just follow gothamtvpodcast.com forward slash iTunes um, and, and leave us uh, a review there. So thank you again so much for listening. Yeah, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks. Bye.